0: Welcome to Everyone Has a Story talking about mental health. We know that mental health care today works for some people, but is not good enough for far too many. We also know that lots of people don't talk about their mental health challenges and that stigma can be a huge issue. Yet the more people you speak to, the more you realize that everyone has a story. In this podcast, we're going to hear some of those stories and talk about how we can improve the patient experience in mental health care and ease suffering. I'm delighted to welcome Sir Norman Lamb to our inaugural podcast. Uh, Norman is the chair of South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust, the chairman of the Children's and Young People's Mental Health Coalition, a mental health campaigner, a member of UK Parliament for 18 years, and a former UK government health minister. Welcome, Norman.
1: Hello, George. Good to see you.
0: Thank you. Good to see you, and, and really glad we're able to spend this time together today. Norman, I wanted to ask you, how did you get involved in mental health?
1: So, as a member of Parliament, I became professionally interested. I, I, in my early years in Parliament, I was elected in 2001. I started to spend a lot of time campaigning on a range of health and care issues. And then I became appointed as health spokesperson for my party, the Liberal Democrats, in about 2006, 2007. and six, two thousand and seven, and. I started to see the disparity of treatment between physical health and mental health, that, that, uh, you know, if you had a physical health problem, you got access to treatment on a timely basis. If you had a mental health problem, you were left waiting interminably sometimes. So I started to come up with plans for how one could confront that and to pursue the cause of equality of access to treatment for physical and mental health. But then our own family uh, experienced mental ill health. Our oldest son, Archie, when he was 15, 16, was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. And we got to a point where we were told by the NHS that we would have to wait up to six months before he could start treatment. And this was a moment of desperation for us. We, We were desperate. We couldn't wait that long. Uh, And so what did we do? Well, we paid for treatment. I guess that left me feeling very uneasy because most people can't pay for treatment uh, and that's an injustice. Uh, And so it made me very driven to campaign for timely access to support when you need it for everyone. And then it's also important to mention to you that in 2016, uh, my older sister, Catherine, in her mid to late 60s, Uh, took her own life uh, after a period of deep clinical depression following the death of our mother and so our family has gone through the trauma that so many families have gone through with the loss of a loved one through suicide Uh, these things have informed my interest in in mental health and I think it's probably made me more empathetic you know When people came to see me as a member of parliament and as a minister with stories of how the NHS had failed to support their loved one in a timely way, I just sort of had this instinct that it was true what they were saying to me. And I felt, you know, strong empathy with the individuals involved. So, yeah, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm no different to so many other people, George, most families in one way or another have been touched by mental ill
0: health. Well, Norman, I know we we met actually sharing this family experience with our son as well, really struggled upon going into uni, also with OCD and depression. Absolutely.
1: I remember the meeting very well, George.
0: And I remember bringing Alan to visit you in your offices in Parliament. Um, and, you know, I think for us, it was exa- exactly, even on the other side of the Atlantic, the very same experience, you know, of... Yeah. Medicines and different doctors, different diagnoses, medicines upon medicines, side effects. Un, you know, he became unrecognizable to himself and to us. And just seeing that desperate situation, and I hadn't shared this with you, but now you shared about your sister. You know, my ex-wife um, died of alcoholism, and so just witnessing the the suffering that people can go through up close and personal, I think it does bring it home for all of us that everyone does have a story whether it's our own or someone nearby and and i think that this this is an urgency that is really present all around us
1: yeah scratch the surface and most families will have had experiences or are going through experiences of mental health challenges of one sort or another it may be distress because of a circumstance, uh, the death of a loved one or the loss of employment or a buildup of debt or whatever it might be, or it may be diagnosable mental ill health. But this is an experience common to most families. And one of the positive things, I think, of the last few years is that this has come out more into the open. We've still got quite a long way to go, but we're now at least talking about it. We probably wouldn't have had this conversation a decade ago. uh, And it's good that we're now able to do that. And, And so many people, you know, every time I think people in the public eye talk about their own experiences of mental ill health, I just think it makes it a little bit easier for another teenager to seek help. And and, and that for me is worth
0: it. I think it's so important that we have these conversations, even if they're just among our families, with our friends. But these conversations are really important because to your point, there is a parity, physical health and mental health. It's all part of our health as human beings. And it's all part of our experience as human beings. And I think to normalize this and to actually be able to seek care and to treat them as on par with parity, I think is is a really important, in many ways, opportunity we have today. And then the question is, how do we get the systems to behave in that way? And before we get to that that little challenge that I think is a global challenge, but I'm wondering what your reflections are, both personal, but also in your various roles, uh, you know, being a chairman of an NHS Foundation Trust, what, what do you see as the impact of COVID on mental health, mental health workers? and Just get a sense of what you see is the world we're about to enter as this lockdown starts to become unlocked a bit.
1: Well, I think the first thing to say is that it's been a very difficult time for very many people, you know, and there's quite a contrast of experience because for many people who are perhaps financially secure, live in nice houses, live in nice neighborhoods, in some respects for those people, uh, it's been quite a good time. A, A welcome pause from the pace of life and, and, a, and a moment to appreciate nature and uh, and and each other you know uh, companionship so there has been quite a varied experience i think but if you're living on the 20th floor of a tower block in an inner city and you've got street screaming children and perhaps you're a single parent at fear of losing your job then the anxiety and the distress will be very significant i think it's also worth remembering that People are, by and large, extraordinarily resilient. And most people who've gone through difficult times will recover from this. And I I think it's dangerous to sort of talk about a a mental health pandemic, uh, to borrow the description from what we've been through, because that level of resilience is very prevalent. But there will be some for whom recovery is much more challenging. I think there's a particular concern about the impact on many young people, children and young people. So, I mean, there's one subgroup of children who, you know, in normal times they go to school and the school can pick up signs of distress. Perhaps there's been some domestic violence that they've witnessed at home. But when you're not going to school, there's no one picking up those warning signs and, There will be a number of children who've experienced trauma, abuse or neglect during this period behind the locked front door. uh, And we should be really worried about them. I think also for young parents, giving birth during this period has been immensely challenging. And for many babies and toddlers, they haven't had the normal socialisation that we expect. And we don't know what the longer term impact of this will be and you know I was talking to a young mum recently a single mum who has a child who we think may be autistic for her it's been really really tough and getting the health professionals to respond to her concerns has also been more difficult than it normally is and then there's all those young people who are just very worried about the future you know employment prospects disruption to education and so forth So I think we should focus our particular attention on children and young people. And we are seeing in the data in the NHS, not just in our trust, but across the country, increases in presentations by children and young people to quite a worrying degree. It's also worth saying that the evidence from all previous pandemics, all previous recessions, is that there is a sort of psychological fallout from this. Uh, and so we must expect an increased level of need in the months and years ahead.
0: I think that's certainly consistent with what so many others are saying, and and I think the focus you put the, on young people and vulnerable people in this is is really important because it it doesn't affect all of us equally. To your point, both of resilience as well as our our not, you know resources. I guess one of the things that you also have a I think, a really credible vantage point on is the impact on frontline workers. Um, One of the things that I saw, certainly in some of the reports, both from the U.S. and the U.K., has been a real emergence almost of post-traumatic stress disorder among frontline workers, or to put a sharper point on it, psychiatrists referring to moral injury on frontline workers who had to make decisions they never imagined making in their professional careers. And that there's, you know, a long-term impact of that. And I was wondering, in addition to the children and the vulnerable young people, how are you seeing this in, just in the NHS Trust? uh, And how is it manifest?
1: It's absolutely right. I think many staff in both the NHS, but also in care services, you don't think about being in a care home, Uh, which is locked to the outside world, not allowing visitors in, with a whole load of people who have COVID. You know, the anxiety that many of those workers will have gone through will have been profound. So I think there are real needs amongst that particular workforce. The the staff staff within the NHS, in many cases, are exhausted as a result of what they've been through over the last year. And we have to remember that each of us individually has our own anxieties about COVID. And if you can imagine in a mental health trust, and at one point we had COVID on pretty much every ward in our trust, mental health patients may well be much more uninhibited. They may not understand uh, the need for mask wearing, for social distancing, and staff are having to cope with that risk to themselves every day, and they are putting themselves on the front line to support vulnerable people in a pretty admirable way. Now, the NHS has done quite a lot to provide uh, support systems, a 24-hour helpline, for example, for both patients and for staff, and a whole range of other support services. But it's unlikely to be enough for some people, and we have to be very supportive in the months ahead for those people who, as you say, will have something akin to post-traumatic stress as a result of this.
0: Yes. I guess looking for perhaps some positive in terms of the stigma of this, given the prevalence that you're talking about, do you think that this will make it easier to talk about mental health post-crisis, post-pandemic?
1: Well, I think over the last decade or so, we've been on a journey. You know, we've been opening up quite a lot as we talked about earlier and that's a very positive thing and I think there are signs that through the pandemic there has been a recognition from politicians about the sort of mental health implications uh, of the pandemic and the lockdown. The thing that I worry about is that within the sort of phrase mental health it encompasses such a an enormous range of conditions and circumstance. And I think often when politicians talk about, you know, the impact on our mental health, they're thinking about perhaps mild depression or anxiety. I still think there's an enormous stigma that's attached to, you know, conditions such as uh, psychosis and uh, schizophrenia and bipolar OCD, you know, and it's often trivialized, as you, George, will be very much aware. So we've still got a very long way to go, I think.
0: I absolutely agree. And I think that we also seem to have a much better language uh, to talk about mental ill health than we do about mental health itself, right? We have all of these different diagnoses and so forth. But is mental health, in fact, just more than the absence of those illnesses, right? And what does it mean to flourish? So I think that we have a whole range here to talk about, but really today is, I think, looking at those people who are most vulnerable, what support do they need, and how can we really do that as as individuals, as families, social groups, and society? And I guess I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about Things that you think we could be doing to reduce stigma. Before we talk about more broad how we provide care.
1: Well, I think what's been happening over recent years, in other words, public figures talking about their own experiences, has been very valuable. I think it helps to normalize uh, mental ill health and make it easier for others to seek help. So I, I would encourage that to continue. It's rather a shame that our Time to Change campaign in the UK, which has been publicly funded, has come to an end very recently. But We mustn't allow that to mean that we don't continue the effort to reduce stigma. And I think there's really a responsibility on all of us, all, all of us who, who have the experience that you and I have talked about, to get out there and campaign to change, to explain, to raise awareness and raise understanding of mental ill health and to remove some of the fear and the anxiety that's related to it. I think very many families, when they get a diagnosis, and I think sometimes diagnoses can be a mixed blessing, but when they get a diagnosis for their son or their daughter, I think Too often it's sort of seen as a life sentence and it sometimes feels that way, you know, it really does. And yet our story, and I think probably your story, George, demonstrates that we should have an optimism about this because our son, I mean, we went through years of emotional turmoil. There were some pretty dark times, including the period when I was health minister, when we were coping with crises in our family life. And I was having to keep performing day after day. But now he's 33. He's just had a child. He's married. He's in a good place. He's earning far more than I will ever earn, doing very well in the music business. And I suppose the the message is, you know, he's been lucky enough to get access to good support, to family support and love never abandoning him, seeing him through everything, but also uh, some good treatment, learning coping mechanisms. He's, of course, also become a bit more mature. Now, it's not to say that everyone's story is the same, but I think often you can get to a better place. And so we must teach that optimistic story that it doesn't have to be you know a life sentence and and we may well come on to it because there is also some hope as we know of treatments and medications that might advance the cause of people with mental ill health as well
0: I think you're so right and I I have to say that I was going to use the term life sentence because that's how the diagnosis felt to us as parents
1: exactly there
0: you said it and it was really grim right because it did seem like it, there was nothing to be done but back to your comment about resilience i think we have to believe in in our resilience and care and and how to support people and also how to have access to innovation you know because i remember one particularly grim time when a very well known psychiatrist in the us said well your son has a, a profound chemical imbalance. And uh, Katya, my wife, who you know well, and you know, Katya is a physician and she became outraged because no blood work was ever taken. No scan, you know, it was just a- An assumption. And you know, but it was said with such authority in this very, you know, authoritative institution. And and so I think that we do have to really believe in resilience, we do have to look for other options. Um, And I think that this is what we have to make available for others because it's easy if we are in a certain place in our lives, et cetera, have had certain good fortune. You know, there are the single moms you talked about, uh, the families who are struggling, particularly after COVID and the, the economic damage that's happened that, you know, I think we'll be turning our attention to societally. So I do think that this is a, it is a really important moment and it is an important moment to hold out hope. Uh, we have a very similar story with Alan in terms of how he is uh, moving in his life and it's something we could never have imagined. We have to make sure that the systems can support all of us.
1: Absolutely. I should also say, George, that there's also a, an ethnic dimension to this and Unconscious in our in the context of the South London and Maudsley, we serve a very diverse population, and there are very troubling data on the disproportionate use of the Mental Health Act. This is to detain people compulsorily uh, in respect of young black men when you compare that with uh, young white men. Much more regular diagnoses of psychosis uh, in parts of southeast London. So, we also have a real responsibility to confront those issues as well, uh, because we need to ensure that everyone has the chance to thrive uh, as much as they're able to, and that we mustn't just write people off, which I think sometimes the system unfortunately does.
0: I think you make a couple of really profound points in that, Norman. One of them is, in fact, the disparities that are all too present. And the fact that as much as this seems like science, sometimes it's human judgment and human judgment that's subject to bias. And so I think you have to be incredibly vigilant for this. I think the other thing that you raise is something we always wrestle with as we think about mental health care or care for mental ill health, which is at what point do you stop? if someone's just a little less miserable is that success or do we really have an obligation to all of us to look at how we help people determine what flourishing is for themselves and to look at how to support that and to help them move forward i know given the current state helping people suffer a little less is actually still an admirable goal but i do think it it does raise the question of when do you stop caring for mental health and you know, is it just to not have ill health or is it to really move toward flourishing? And I think you you held out something really interesting in what you said.
1: I I think, George, that we need to be more ambitious for people. I mean, sometimes the system contains people in institutions, which is not a comfortable position for me. Uh, Sometimes we think that the best we can do is just to stop crises from happening. And, you know, we have to be realistic, but I think also we should be ambitious to do the very best we can to give the best chance for people to lead a, a a fulfilling and happy life. I mean, you know, happiness is not something that politicians talk enough about, I think, but that's ultimately quite an important goal.
0: It's a hugely important human goal. Um, and I guess that it talks maybe, it, let's turn our attention a bit to the current system, because I, I think that one of the things that really struck us, even with having the choice that we had uh, working in America and being, you know, we just had the ability to find really what we thought was good care. And it was highly variable. And you talked about the private and the public systems. And here we have a really interesting question, I think, of how good is the current system and for whom? And my view is it's not nearly good enough for enough people. And I was just curious kind of what your view is, particularly from your more official roles and responsibilities of caring for so many people as chairman of the trust, et cetera, and your role in parliament. Where do you see the the current level and where would you like it to go? And, and what do you see as some impediments to get to that vision?
1: I don't think the current system is good enough, uh, bluntly. Particularly for young people, we have a what I would describe as a rather broken and dysfunctional repair model or treatment model. So it involves enormous rationing. So typically a child or a teenager might be referred by their GP to the local mental health trust in in the UK. And I know that this is very similar to what happens in many other countries. And quite often that child will be rejected Uh, for treatment uh, at the Mental Health Trust. They will not meet the threshold for admittance because they're not sick enough. And if they do meet the threshold, they're often then left waiting for a very long time. And I talked about our own family circumstance. Waits of a year are not uncommon in the UK uh, for a teenager, for goodness sake. In my last year in Parliament, before I stood down in 2019, I dealt with two teenagers, one male, one female, both of whom in their teen years had waited a year before their first appointment. And then the female had started treatment at the age of 17 and a half, and she'd reached her 18th birthday, and she was told your treatment now has to end because you no longer qualify for children and young people's services. Now, I regard it as unethical to stop treatment because you've reached an arbitrary age. But that's the way, scandalously, the system still operates too often. And I think part of it is that we need to focus more on how we prevent mental ill health, how we build resilience in schools and in in wider society with children and young people. We have to understand the importance of intervening early, avoiding over-pathologising where it's not necessary, and for those children and young people who do require treatment to get them into treatment quickly, in the same way as anyone with a physical health problem would benefit from. So, you know, I think it requires quite radical reform. There's quite a significant movement globally now for a form of how we respond to youth mental health, sort of endorsing the type of principles that I've talked about, But a lot of systems stubbornly stick to the old way, which fails families routinely across our country and across the world. And that's not acceptable.
0: It really seems that if we focus more on mental health care, we would perhaps need to focus less on mental health treatment. Uh,
1: uh, That's a very good way of putting it, George. Absolutely.
0: And I really loved your attention to how we help children become more resilient, develop life skills. And, and also realize that some children live in just very difficult situations, and those that's part of a broader social care agenda that really needs to be looked at, particularly in this post-COVID time.
1: Yeah, understanding those wider social determinants of health and doing something about them, you know, poor housing, poverty in some circumstances, poor environment. These are things that if we had the will, we could do something about, but We haven't done enough to challenge them at the moment. And I don't think we've recognized enough what the causes of poor mental health often are.
0: I guess maybe talking a moment about that for people listening, um, it's a pretty significant set of needs that you've outlined and a need for programmatic attention, a need for resources. And yet we're coming into, I think, A very, very difficult time of recovery, economic recovery, priorities. What do you think we really need to do to to make sure that attention is focused here and that this doesn't become an area that's neglected once again?
1: I think we need to focus both on ensuring that we invest enough on mental health support, but in an informed way. But uh, along with looking at the total quantum of how much we spend, we have to think more about how we spend the money. Because, you know, if I look at how we spend money in the UK, a lot of it is still spent on containing people in institutions, long lengths of stay. We have internationally quite long lengths of stay compared to many other countries but not dissimilar to, to, to many countries as well. And that's both for children and for adults. In, the, in England, children, when they finally get to a bed after all of the processes you have to go through, the average length of stay is about 65 to 70 days. That means that we're putting a teenager into a bed for about 10 weeks and often away from home. Now. I suspect we often re-traumatise these uh, young people. Just think about reintegrating in your friendship network, your school, uh, and so forth, after being away for so long. That's really tough. So I think we need to sort of refocus and learn from some other countries. Last February, February 2020, just before uh, the world went into lockdown, I visited Trieste in northern Italy, and they have a very enlightened view uh, to mental health there. They, going back to the 70s, they've moved away from locking so many people up, and their focus is on supporting people to live better lives in the community. And because they're not spending so much money on, in effect, incarcerating people, they're able to spend money more creatively uh, on giving people better lives, and that, for me, must be the direction of travel that we take.
0: Once again, you beat me to it. I was <laughs> hesitating to use the term incarceration, but yeah, I mean, talk to people who have been in inpatient facilities in the U.S. Particularly, there has been a sense of almost the trauma of having to be have that be part of your identity, part of your history. To be in those circumstances where whether it's with physical constraints or restraints, chemical through the medicines that are often used, I think it can be quite traumatic and and almost add and compound in some instances.
1: I think, George, we, we routinely breach people's human rights. You know, it's, we know now how you can, in most circumstances, avoid the need for the use of force, the use of restraint, for example, or forced medication, We know uh, through positive behaviour support, through creating a good environment, through treating people with dignity and respect and so forth. And yet we continue to do it in the name of the state against very vulnerable people. And of course, what happens is that someone's experience in an inpatient setting is often quite traumatic. It's not therapeutic, the environment very often, And so the last thing they want to do is come back again. They've absolutely lost trust in the mental health system. So the need for change, I think, is uh, very great. Uh, And and I think that, uh, you know, we should be learning from places like Trieste about how we can change that model of care. Uh,
0: I think this really is a a very important thread and it's in many ways the darker side of stigma. It's not enough just not to talk about it, but to be so fearful that we treat others who suffer Uh, in this way, I think, is a a dark side of stigma quite often. And and we have to be, I think, vigilant about this as we can and see it and call call it out when we do see it. Maybe I turn to something a bit more um, forward-looking and and perhaps a bit more hopeful. It's about innovation and research. Um, I think in many ways, we're in the golden age of new things, new treatments, new models, new understanding even. Um, You know, I'm thinking about the advent of some of the deeper understandings through brain scanning of mechanisms and and understanding new treatment models and even combining therapies and medicines and technology to really look at this in a 21st century way. And, you know, I, I know one of the things that we're both quite interested in is how innovation and research can help change some of the situations we've discussed. And I do think it's a golden age for innovation in mental health, in many ways, not unlike it was for cancer and oncology 20, 30 years ago. Obviously, the the brain, the mind is a very, very complex, difficult to understand. Um, So, you know, it has taken longer, but we are at what seems to be the dawn of a new era in terms of understanding and new ways of combining Medicines and therapies and digital support uh, in really interesting new ways. And I was wondering how you're seeing the UK and and how we think, how you think about really creating a culture of innovation and research in the NHS. I know that may seem far, far, far away from the current state, but again, we have to hold out our hope at, and invest in the future as well. So, what do you think about all that? What seems promising and how do you think about this?
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because historically, the amount that we spend on mental health research has lagged rather badly behind other areas of healthcare, And I'm sure that that's related to the sense that until the last decade, it was that sort of hidden set of conditions that people didn't talk about. But I think things are now starting to change. And if I think of my own institution, the South London and Borsley, we're attached to the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience. And this is one of the leading centres of research excellence in the world. And so how can we make more of this and how can we create something greater than the sum of its parts in, in a way? We've got... Leading minds in this country in mental health. We've got some good practice along with the practice that I've talked about, which lags behind. But I think we've also, in many respects, led the way in confronting stigma and in opening up about mental health and in creating a new focus on the importance of equality of access and treatment uh, and also challenging government and research funding institutions to get behind increasing the learning uh, in mental health. And so I agree with you. I I think there's a massive opportunity now, particularly as we work in the digital age, where we've got so many opportunities for research that can really change our understanding and improve our understanding. And, you know, the work that you've done on psilocybin, I mean, you know, the the potential opportunity that we have here is enormous. And I think what we've got to do is try to convince the government of the massive golden opportunity that we've got waiting there, if only it could be grasped and uh, embraced. And, you know, I think then we've got a massive chance to lead the world And just think about what could be achieved through that. You know, I I, I think our current treatments for mental ill health are so suboptimal. You know, if you think about this explosion in the use of antidepressants over the last few decades across the world, particularly the developed world, you know, a doubling in the number of prescriptions with very little achieved as a result. And, you know, the opportunity to transform lives, both through better prevention of mental ill health, which is what I talked about earlier. And I think, you know, I'd love to see research also focus on how we better prevent the deterioration of health in the first place, but then having more effective treatments. This is a wonderful opportunity. And you really could do something that is fundamental to the happiness of mankind.
0: I think that's such a good place to uh, wind this down because it's it is an important vision. I think other areas of medicine now are very much working on these areas of we call the three P's: personalized, predictive, and preventative. Yeah. So, how do we work on developing that for mental health? How do we leverage the incredible infrastructure of health inside the UK? The data. Uh, Much has been done with uh, genetic research here, and really, it's one of the leaders in terms of understanding how COVID evolved and and mutated because of that investment. Imagine something similar for mental health here in the UK that could become a real beacon for every society to look at how to really grab a hold of innovation, research, and put it in service of improving people's lives to make them happier and healthier. Norman, it's been a delight to spend time with you today. I I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope that uh, people are able to have their own conversations uh, in their own lives about mental health, because everyone does have a story.
1: Been great talking to you, George.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Everyone Has a Story talking about mental health. We hope the stories you've heard today have inspired you in some way to share your own story or be open to listen to someone else's or take an action that will make a difference in someone's life. Please subscribe or follow this podcast on your favorite app. There's so much more to be done to improve mental health care. Thank you for being part of the conversation and see you on the next episode.